Take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3 once more. You know, some folks say, well, what is it really, why is this conflict that's raging all the way, you know, 6,000 miles away, you know, what does this really have to do with my life? I've heard some people say things like that. But you know, the thing is, folks, uh, 1939, there was a man in Europe named Hitler who on September 1st of that year essentially did the same thing in the nation of Poland. And prior to Hitler's invasion of Poland, uh, he had basically um, set out on a campaign to try to come to what he said was the defense of ethnic Germans in Poland. And there are some uncanny parallels with what Vladimir Putin has done just this past week with what Hitler did in 1939. And many have said, well, he has reunification in mind of that Soviet empire. He wants to restore the glory of Mother Russia. And you can, we can, you know, speculate all we want to, that kind of thing. I'll leave that to other people. But I'm just simply saying what we've witnessed this week is a perfect illustration of something that the Apostle John writes about here in this third chapter of 1 John because it's basic human nature on display. Wanting something to the degree that we shed blood in order to get what we want. And this is where sin and the the consequences of sin will lead lost humanity. Humanity that is in need of redemption, in need of the grace of God. You know, you've heard of sibling rivalry. (laughs) It didn't originate with your children, I promise. It didn't originate with you or your siblings. In fact, it's something that's true perhaps of every uh, family, every generation, every human relationship for that matter. But sibling rivalry can often have repercussions for generations. Take, for example, there's a town in Germany to this day that still deals with the wounds of a bitter family argument that split the town really for 70-plus years now. The name of the town is Herzegonarat. It's a town with a population of less than 25,000 people, only a half hour's drive from the much larger city of Nuremberg. But in the 1920s, there were two German brothers who were there in that town. Their names were Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. But these two brothers created a shoe company in their mother's laundry room. Now, the story goes, as their business began to boom and their business began to grow, so also did the tension begin to grow between the two brothers. And what started the spat really is a mystery even to this day. Uh, rumors say that it was internal family difficulties. A uh, lot of accusations fly, but many point to a night in 1943 when Herzegonarak, the town, was under Allied bombardment. Adolf, he went by nickname Addy, using the first, just really using just three letters, A D I. He and his wife apparently 
had sort of climbed down into an air raid shelter only to hear his brother Rudolph, who went by Rudy, who was already in that shelter with his wife, say something to the effect, the pigs are back. Now, Rudy insisted that he had meant the Royal Air Force, but his brother, Addie, did not believe him and thought he was referring to he and his wife. So after World War II was over, the two were officially parted ways. Adolf started a company uh, using the first three letters of his nickname and the last three letters, or the first three letters of his last name, and you know the company today as Adidas. His brother Rudy did the same thing and started a company. He called it Ruda, but later changed the name of it to Puma. So that rivalry has divided that town ever since because the headquarters for both Adidas and Puma are located in the town of Herzegonarek within two miles of each other. Now don't tell me that division and animosity and enmity and rivalry does not have consequences. Eventually, it pulls other people into one of two sides. It's happened there. Uh, it's probably happened in your life at some point. Issues of sibling rivalry, brother against brother, nation against nation. This goes all the way back to the earliest days of man's history. It's as old as Cain and Abel. And that's something that the Apostle John wants us to understand here in 1 John chapter 3. Let's read, beginning with verse 11. The Scripture says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I want to speak from this subject this morning. Love is the way. Within these verses and the verses that follow, the Apostle John wants his readers to know that love is the way. Love for one's brother is characteristic of someone who's passed from death into life. It serves as evidence that we've come to know the Lord, which is something that John has already explained in this third chapter, namely that there will be outward evidence of inward life. Where a person has truly come to know Jesus as their Savior, that will result in a changed life. What God has worked in by way of His righteousness will be worked outwardly in that person's life. John says in verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So it's a habitual practice of righteousness versus a habitual practice of sin and that's not to say that the child of God will be perfect. John is not so much dealing with individual acts of sin here, but with sin as a manner and way of lifestyle. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So love is the way of Jesus, and love is the most, it's really a distinguishing mark of the child of God. 
Now, in these verses, John gives us an exhortation, an illustration, and then he makes some application. So, notice number one, there's an exhortation that's given to us in verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. He's not offering a suggestion here. This is not the language of suggestion, but rather this is imperative language. And in the whole preceding passage, John has called upon believers to pursue holiness, all in hope of the view, uh, in view of the hope that they possess in Jesus Christ. Because you have hope in Jesus, this is the way that you're to live your life in the practical sense. And the one who practices righteousness is righteous, John says, because no one born of God is ever going to make a practice of sin. So he's dealing with lifestyle. He's dealing with habitual behavior. Where there's divine life, John says there will also be divine love. And he's calling upon these believers to love each other in the fellowship. Now notice how he says that love is primary. This goes all the way back to the beginning, according to what John says. This is something that you've heard from the beginning. That's the eighth time that he's used this expression in 1 John. And so he's saying this is, this is God's design for humanity. God intended for humanity to live in the light of his love and in a harmonious relationship with one another. Uh, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning in terms of your own Christian experience. You know that this is the gospel message. This is the message that Jesus himself gave to us. That's what John is saying here now to his readers. John was there in the upper room. Uh, he heard Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Uh, it made an indelible mark upon his life. It, it was a stamp upon his memory. John never forgot the fact that Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So this message of love, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And so it's primary. It's a primary message. And then notice that love is necessary. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. John says that we should love one another. Again, this is imperative language here. We're commanded to love one another. Now, by the way, before you jump to the command, I think you need to keep in mind knowing who we are as the children of God is absolutely crucial as far as obedience is concerned to this particular commandment. You know, one of the enemy's strategies in your life is to confuse you about who you are. You ever thought about how the enemy tries to work so hard to convince unsaved people that they're fine, while also at the same time trying to confuse saved people that they're not? One of the things the devil wants to do is to confuse you over just basic sense of identity. He wants to confuse you about who you are. If he can accuse and confuse a believer over this issue of sonship, then he can really render that believer ineffective in terms of service to God. And that's why John is so clear in the way that he establishes we are the children of God. You need to know who you are. This is what he's saying to his believers. Again, he wants to provide them with a sense of assurance we don't do certain things in order to become God's children. No, we are God's children. And because of that, John says, we do certain things. Because we are God's children, we practice righteousness. Because we are the children of God, we love one another in the family. 
So who we are determines what we do. And what we do is evidence of who we are. Who am I? Listen, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. I'll tell you who I am. I'm brand new. Child of God, in Jesus Christ, I've been adopted into the family of God. There's been a new birth take place. This is now who I am. I'm a child of God. You know Jesus, you're a child of God. So that means my obedience then to God is not something that I do in order to gain acceptance with God. I obey because I've already been accepted in Christ. And so do you see how that works? That then becomes liberating. And this is the difference between legalism and an understanding of grace. Legalism goes about this, 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 this whole approach tr trying to gain acceptance with God. I obey in order to gain acceptance. No, grace understands that I've been accepted in Jesus Christ. Therefore, obedience is a loving response to the grace of God in my life. You say, well, why are you saying all of that? Well, because verse 11, this language of command, some people would say that it's very strange that a person be commanded to love anybody. But the world doesn't understand this. Because the world defines love simply as an emotion. And how can, I, how can I do something that I may not necessarily feel? The world has a wrong understanding of what love is. So there's a command here for God's children simply because we are God's children. <laughs> you say, what in the world are you talking about? God's done something in you and for you, and in light of that, he's given you this command. The commandments, take, for example, the Ten Commandments. Someone says, well, what, what came first, the commandments of God or redemption from bondage? <laughs> the exodus happened. God did something for his people. He redeemed them from their bondage in Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, where he then gave them his law and gave them commandments. So redemption precedes then the commandments. Same thing's true in your life as a believer. There are commandments. There are imperatives in the Christian life. But in order for you to understand those imperatives, you need to know who you are in Jesus Christ. That's why in the New Testament you often see indicative language precedes imperative language. You see this pattern all through the letters that Paul writes. You see this pattern here in 1 John. Indicative language is language which is true of you. There are certain things God wants you to know that are true of you, who you are in Jesus Christ. As a gift of God's grace, received through simple faith in Christ alone. Indicative language, I am a child of God. We are children of God. This is indicative language. And then the imperative follows the indicative. What's the imperative? Well, love one another. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, John puts his whole exhortation to us that we should love one another in terms of our position. He says, it cannot be said too frequently that the New Testament never asks us to do anything without first of all reminding us of who we are. It does so because its doctrine is that we cannot do the things we are asked to do unless we are the children of God. What's the commandment that God gives to those that don't know him? Well, there's really only one. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Because let me tell you something. You can't obey God apart from being a child of God. Are you listening? There's only one way to obedience. Only one person has obeyed God with perfection, and that's Jesus Christ. And if, if, if a relationship with God and entrance to heaven and possession of eternal life is a matter of perfect obedience, I had better have received the righteousness of that person who obeyed perfectly. And that's exactly what the gospel tells me I have in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I've been declared righteous. I've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Mystery of mysteries, the Spirit of God Himself, the life of God has come to take up residence within me as a believer to now empower my obedience. So God never calls upon you to do something that He has not already provided the means and the ability and the power for you to do. How's this so practical in my life? I'll tell you why. Because oftentimes there are going to be people in your life that you just have a hard time loving. Let's just be honest. You say, how can I love someone that I don't even like? Well, left up to yourself, it's impossible. You can't do it. You don't have the resources to do it uh, in, in and of yourself. That's why salvation is God giving himself to you. He's given his life to you. He's put his spirit in you. Therefore, the command to love one another, this is a supernatural command and it's the, it's the life of God, the love of God in me, loving those around me. You understand? That's what John is saying here. And so this is really his exhortation to the believers. They needed to know that. Now he follows this up with an illustration then of what he's talking about. There's an exhortation that we should love one another. And then secondly, notice this illustration that's used. And he gives this illustration in both a negative and a positive he uses both a negative example as well as a positive example of what he's talking about. What does love for my brother look like? Well, before he tells me what it looks like, he's going to tell me what it doesn't look like. He says there in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. So this business of loving one another, John doesn't leave it all in the realm of theory or in the realm of ideas, but he provides us with an illustration of how the children of God ought to love one another. And this negative example is that of Cain. Now, he's going to follow that up in verse 16 with the positive example of Christ. So two examples by way of contrast to show us what love for one's brother is and what it is not. Now, notice Cain negatively, according to John, was of the evil one. And he's making a parallel statement to what he said back up in verse number 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Well, now, here in verse 12, he's giving the example of that. Cain, who murdered his brother, is of the evil one. And so his whole point is that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. It's evident who they are. Cain is the original example of a child of the evil one who despised God's word. He failed to heed God's warning. Cain nursed a hatred and an animosity in his heart toward his brother, and, and he took it to its extreme conclusion. He murdered his brother. In fact, the word that John uses here to describe the nature of Cain's sin is a very graphic term that means to butcher 
It's a term that implies savagery and hatred. So this was not simply a tragic, accidental death in which a wrestling match between two brothers got out of hand. If you had brothers growing up or sisters growing up, you know, inevitably there were times where you fought like cats and dogs. And every now and then, sometimes things got a little bit out of hand. That's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about premeditated murder. He's talking about an act on Cain's part that was premeditated. This was not just a brawl in the backyard. This was violent. This was an attack. It was something that he nursed in his heart that led him to do something with his hands. And what was it that stirred up so much hatred within Cain? Well, John asks the same question. But before we consider his answer, uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 4 and let's look at the story ourselves. Go to Genesis chapter 4 and see what the Scripture says about Cain and Abel. Now, you know this is just on the heels of man's fall in the Garden of Eden. Man has been expelled from the garden because of his sin, but it's not without promise because back up in chapter 3, Genesis 3.15, God cursed the serpent and said that I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be this conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Victory is going to come through the seed of the woman. And so this is something that Eve, she, she lives with this hope from here on out. And everyone else in the Old Testament also lived with this hope. There's going to be a Messiah who's going to come and who's going to deliver us from the, from the serpent, from the grip of sin. Now notice as Genesis chapter 4 begins, Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So there's an element of celebration. There's an element of enthusiasm. There's an element of joy in her words here. Perhaps this male child who has been born, perhaps he's going to be the one who's going to crush the head of the evil one. Well, that's not what happens Verse 2, again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, two things about the brothers. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry. His face fell. So notice here, the beginning of Cain's issues can be traced back to an unaccepted offering. Both brothers are coming to present themselves before the Lord. Both brothers are bringing uh, some type of an offering. God has regard for Abel's offering. It's accepted, but Cain's is not. And what happens? Well, this, this begins to foster a hostility. It begins to stoke the flames of animosity within Cain's heart. But notice, God comes to Cain, verse 6, and says to him, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, then sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain's face has been cast down. Uh, his, his face has fallen. Pay attention to that. It describes his inner disposition, which explains his subsequent direction that he takes in life. God confronts him here on this and gives him opportunity. He too could find acceptance, but it meant repentance on his part. Sin was crouching at the door. Sin desired to have mastery over his life. And I'm telling you, there's a lot in that verse, verse 7. Sin crouching at the door. What is this referring to? Is it referring to his heart? Is it referring to the door to the tent where he physically lived? Some have said that it could even be that the door is a reference to Eden itself. One person who's written a lot about this is a fellow by the name of Michael Morales. But older translations used to translate verse 7 a little bit differently. For example, Adoniram Judson translated Genesis 4-7 a little bit differently. He translated it this way, a sin offering lies at the entrance. So in both Hebrew, in Hebrew, both sin and sin offering are rendered by the same word, the meaning of which has to be determined by context. Crouching, uh, this word uh, that's used there uh, is, is, is commonly used to describe an animal that's lying down. So here's what Morales says. He says it could be that the Lord revealed to Cain the means by which he might be restored to divine fellowship, which is precisely the same means that he would later reveal to Moses in Leviticus. What was the means? A sin offering at the sanctuary door. You can go to Leviticus chapter 1. You can see this for yourself in verse 3 where, where, where Moses is specifically told that he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, which is the, later, the tabernacle, so that he may be accepted by the Lord. You know what the tabernacle was? It's the sanctuary. It's a picture of what Eden was and what man had when he lived in fellowship with God there in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sin, what happens? They're banished from Eden. Cherubim with flaming swords are, are placed at the entrance into the garden sanctuary to keep the man from entering. So it could be that Adam and his descendants for a period of time would bring their sin offering even to the gate to Eden. Now there's a lot of imagery there. If that be an accurate understanding of this particular text. If this is what God is saying to Cain, then that kind of makes sense. Why is it that Abel's sacrifice is accepted, but Cain's is not? Because Abel comes to God the way that God has said he's to be approached. He brings the best of his flock, which means there's blood, there's an atonement, there's death, there's a substitutionary death. That's the same pattern that you see. That's what God does with Adam and Eve. There's an animal that has to die so that its skins can cover Adam and Eve. Atonement. So you see this blood in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, is a picture of an atoning sacrifice that you and I need in order to be accepted by God, to have a relationship with God. But Cain, what does he do? He brings God a salad. God doesn't want your salad. 
It might look good to you. You might think this is an appropriate way to approach God. Who needs a bloody sacrifice? That is, that's barbaric. Who would think that such a barbaric practice would ever be necessary? But this is what God has decreed. This is what God demands. So Cain brings an offering of his own will. Abel brings a sacrifice for his sin. His offering is accepted. Cain's is rejected. And so what does Cain do? He begins to, to boil with, with jealousy, with hatred, with anger. God comes to him. God gives him the warning. He's given an opportunity to repent. But what does he do about it? Well, verse 8 says that he spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's interesting to me that he wasn't willing that the spilled blood of a lamb plead for him, but he was more than willing to spill the blood of his own brother instead. So you've got murder, you've got envy, hatred. This was Cain's settled disposition. There's no story of repentance and faith. And and even when when God says to him in verse 9, where is your brother? Uh, He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So there's no owning his sin here. There's no confession of his sin. There's no repentance from his sin. But God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it'll no longer yield to you its strength. And you'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now look at this, verse 13. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Who's he concerned for here? Himself. Who's he thinking about here? Himself. Seven times in those sentences he refers to himself. And so this is why the way of Cain is seen in contrast with the way of Christ The way of Cain is seen in contrast with the way of love that the Apostle John is describing here in 1 John chapter 3. Cain is a self-centered person. Cain is of the evil one. His settled disposition is one of hatred, envy, murder. He kicks the cycle of sin into high gear in his life. Envy gives way to hatred, and hatred nursed gives way to murder, and it's the death spiral of sin and the destruction that it causes, and it was all rooted in unbelief and refusal to obey God. Adam's sin led to a chain of events, folks, with ripple effects that are still being witnessed and felt to this day. It's why the world can't understand why in the 21st century, one nation more powerful will invade another less powerful than it. The world looks at that and says, well, why in the world would something like that happen? You and I as believers, we know what human nature is apart from God. We know that the answer to it is the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ and the love of God being poured out into a person's heart and life. And that's the point that the Apostle John is making here. Now look at this. John says, here's here's some application 
for you. You consider what Cain did to his brother Abel. The application that's made, don't be surprised, brethren, that the world hates you. You're the children of God who've come to know Jesus. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Why was it that Cain murdered his brother? Well, because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So it was this envy and it was this sinful hatred of the truth that sought to stamp out the truth, to eradicate the truth. That's what motivated Cain to kill Abel. That's what motivates persecution and animosity toward the truth and toward the people of God and toward the church. And it has so for centuries, and it will be until Jesus Christ returns. Now look at this application, verse 14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. There's something different that's taken place in the life of a child of God. We love our brother. We love our sister. And this love doesn't come from us, but it comes from the God who's come to live within us, who's changed us. And that's why the church ought to have a really... Oh, a great way of pointing to the world around us what God does and what the gospel does in a person's life. No murderer has eternal life abiding in him, John says. Again, bear in mind the fact he's referring to settled disposition. There have been a lot of people who've come to this verse and who felt like they could never be saved, they could never be forgiven, maybe because they've killed someone in their anger or they've done something that's had devastating effects in someone's life and they think, well, I could never be saved. I could never be forgiven by that. Is that what John is saying here? No. Again, he's, he's referring to settled disposition. Are there examples in the scripture of those who were murderers who experienced the grace of God and were saved and converted? Yeah. One of which being the apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9 talks about Saul of Tarsus while he was still breathing threats and murder against the church. He has an encounter with the grace of God on the Damascus Road. And the living Christ changes his life. And the very one who uh, had, had been destroying the church, murdering believers, locking believers up, he then begins to preach the faith that he tried to destroy. That is the power of love. That is the way of love. That, my friend, is the results of the gospel in a person's life. And that's what the Apostle John is referring to here. Let me give you some closing application before we pray this morning. First point by way of application, love is not optional, but it's something that's required of God's children. And John says, love one another. Again, this is not a suggestion. This is something to be obeyed in my life. And so that means there's a personal application for my life. But notice there's a corporate application here. Because John is using plural terms. He's saying love one another. We know that we've passed from death to life. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church. And so this is a command that you really can't obey while being disconnected from other believers. And so there's a corporate application here. And this goes against something that's so true of our time, this individualistic spirit that wants to worship the self and all things revolve around the self. This, this flies in the face of that spirit. A second point of application is that love is not vague, but it's always tangible and it's always specific. 
He doesn't just tell us to love one another, but he shows us what that love looks like. In fact, he's going to explain it in depth in verse 16 and the verses that follow when he points us to the selfless, sacrificial example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in that way, a third and final point of application is this. Love is not self-centered, but it's focused on others. Because verse 16 says, by this we know love. We know what it looks like. We've experienced it firsthand in our lives. He, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. The way of Cain, the way of hatred and envy and animosity and jealousy, murders, kills, takes life. But the way of Christ, which is selfless and sacrificial and humble, what does it do? It lays down its life. And since he laid down his life for us, John says we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is the way of love. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Now, folks, imagine with me. These traits are what set the children of God apart. It's what distinguished God's people in the world. It's what God has in mind for the local church. The measure of the relationships that we have with one another. Imagine if the kind of selfless love that we see at the cross were on display in the relationships that we have with each other. You know what? There'd be no thought for myself. I wouldn't wouldn't look for my own interest above anybody else, but I'd think about my brother, think about my sister. What's good for my brother? What's good for my sister? How can I lay down my life for the sake of another? That makes all the difference, doesn't it, in the family of God? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Whether you're here this morning watching this online, the good news of the gospel is that God loves you. You can be forgiven. You can be saved. You can possess eternal life and experience the love of God that John is describing. Confess your sin to God. Repent. Turn away from it. Don't rely upon self-effort, but believe that Christ died for you on the cross and that God rose him, rose him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. Lord, thank you for this precious truth. And I pray, Lord, that the measure of our relationships with each other, as we interact with people, Lord, may the love of God, which we've come to experience in Jesus Christ, also be the love that's expressed through us in a selfless, generous sacrificial way all for the glory of God in Jesus name we pray amen